Chapter One of the Terror: A Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Branda. The Terror, by Arthur Machen. Chapter One: The Coming of the Terror. After two years, we are turning once more to the morning's news with a sense of appetite and glad expectation. There were thrills at the beginning of the war. The thrill of horror and of doom that seemed at once incredible and certain. This was when Namur fell and the German host swelled like a flood over the French fields and drew very near to the walls of Paris. Then we felt the thrill of exultation when the good news came that the awful tide had been turned back that paris and the world were safe for a while at all events then for days we hoped for more news as good as these or better has von kluck been surrendered not to-day but perhaps they will be surrendered to-morrow but the days became weeks the weeks drew out to months the battle in the west seemed frozen now and again things were done that seemed hopeful with promise of events still better but neuve champelle and loose dwelled into disappointments as their tale was told fully the lies in the west remained for all practical purposes of victory immobile nothing seemed to happen there was nothing to read save the record of operations that were clearly trifling and insignificant people speculated as to the reason of this inaction the hopeful said that Joffre had a plan that he was nibbling. Others declared that we were short of munitions. Others again that the new levies were not yet ripe for battle. So the months went by, and almost two years of war had been completed before the motionless English line began to stir and quiver as if it awoke from a long sleep and began to roll onward, overwhelming the enemy. The secret of the long inaction of the British armies has been well kept. On the one hand, it was rigorously protected by the censorship, which severe, and sometimes severe to the point of absurdity, the captains and the depart, for instance, became in this particular matter ferocious. As soon as the real significance of that which was happening, or beginning to happen, was perceived by the authorities, an underlined circular was issued to the newspaper proprietor of great britain and ireland it warned each proprietor that he might impart the contents of this circular to one other person only such person being the responsible editor of his paper who was to keep the communication secret under the severest penalties the circular forbade any mention of certain events that had taken place that might take place it forbade any kind of allusion to these events or any hint of their existence, or of the possibility of their existence, not only in the press, but in any form whatever. The subject was not to be alluded to in conversation. It was not to be hinted at, however obscurely, in letters. The very existence of the circular, its subject apart, was to be a dead secret these measures were successful a wealthy newspaper proprietor of the north warmed a little at the end of the throwster's fist which was held as usual it will be remembered ventured to say to the man next to him how awful it would be wouldn't it if his words were repeated as proof one regrets to say 
that it was time for old arnold to pull himself together and he was fined a thousand pounds then there was the case of an obscure weekly paper published in the county town of an agricultural district in wales the myros observer we would call it was issued from a stationer's back premises and filled its four pages with accounts of local flower shows fancy fairs at vicarages reports of parish councils and rare bathing fatalities it also issued a visitor's list which has been known to contain six names this enlightened organ printed a paragraph which nobody noticed which was very like paragraphs that small country newspapers have long been in the habit of printing which could hardly give so much as a hint to any one to any one that is who was not fully instructed in the secret as a matter of fact this piece of intelligence got into the paper because the proprietor who was also the editor incautiously left the last processes of this particular issue to the staff he was the lord high everything else of the establishment and the star put in a bit of gossip he had heard in the market fill up two inches on the back page but the result was that the mayor's observer ceased to appear owing to untoward circumstances as the proprietor said and he would say no more no more that is by way of explanation but a great deal more by way of execration of damned prime busybodies now a censorship that is sufficiently minute and utterly remorseless can do amazing things in the way of hiding what it wants to hide before the war one would have thought otherwise one would have said that censor or no censor the fact of the murder x or the fact of the bank robbery at y would certainly become known if not through the press at all events through rumour and the passage of the news from mouth to mouth and this would be true of england three hundred years ago and of savage tribelands of to-day but we have grown of late such a preference for the printed word and such a reliance on it that the old faculty of disseminating news by word of mouth has become atrophied forbid the press to mention the fact that jones hath been murdered and it is marvellous how few people will hear of it and of those who hear how few will credit the story that they have heard you meet a man in the train who remarks that he has been told something about a murder in southwark there is all the difference in the world between the impression you receive from such a chance communication and that given by half a dozen lines of print with name in street and date and all the facts of the case people in trains repeat all sorts of tales many of them false newspapers do not print accounts of murders that have not been committed then another consideration that has made for secrecy i may have seemed to say that the old office of rumour no longer exists i shall be reminded of the strange legend of the russians and the mythology of the angels of mont but let me point out in the first place that both these absurdities depended on the papers for their wide dissemination if there had been no newspapers or magazines russians and angels would have made for the brief vague appearance of the most shadowy kind a few would have heard of them fewer still would have believed in them they would have been gossiped about for a bare week or two and so they would have vanished away and then again the very fact of these vain rumours and fantastic tales 
having been so widely believed for a time, was fatal to the credit of any stray mutterings that may have got abroad. People had been taken in twice. They had seen how grave persons, men of credit, had preached and lectured about the shining forms that had saved the British army at Mons, and had testified the trains, packed with grey-coated Muscovites, rushing through the land at dead of night and now there was a hint of something more amazing than either of the discredited legends but this time there was no word of confirmation to be found in daily paper or weekly review or parish magazine and so the few that had either laughed or being serious went home and jotted down nooks for essays on wartime psychology collective delusions I followed neither of these courses, for before the secret circular had been issued, my curiosity had somehow been aroused by certain paragraphs concerning a fatal accident to well-known airmen. The propeller of the airplane had been shattered, apparently by collision with a flight of pigeons. The blades had been broken, and the machine had fallen like lead to the earth. And soon after, as in this account, I heard of some very odd circumstances relating to an explosion in the great munition factory in the Midlands. I thought I saw the possibility of a connection between two very different events. It has been pointed out to me by friends who have been good enough to read this record, the sudden phrases I have used, may give the impression that I ascribe all the delays of the war on the Western Front to the extraordinary circumstances which occasioned the issue of the secret circular. Of course this is not the case. There were many reasons for the immobility of our lines from October 1914 to July 1916. These causes have been evident enough and have been openly discussed and deplored, but behind them was something of infinitely greater moment. We lacked men, but men were pouring into the new army, we were short of shells, but when the shortage was proclaimed, the nation set itself to mend this matter with all its energy. We could undertake to supply the defects of our army both in men and munitions, if the new and incredible danger could be overcome. It has been overcome, rather, perhaps. It has ceased to exist, and the secret may now be told. I have said my attention was attracted by an account of the death of a well-known airman. I have not a habit of preserving cuttings, I am sorry to say, so that I cannot be precise as to the date of this event. To the best of my belief, it was either towards the end of May or the beginning of June 1915. The newspaper paragraph announcing the death of Flight Lieutenant Western Reynolds was brief enough, accidents and fatal accidents, to the men who are storming the air for us are, unfortunately, by no means so rare as to demand an elaborated notice. But the manner in which Western Reynolds met his death struck me as extraordinary, inasmuch as it revealed a new danger in the element that we have lately conquered. It was brought down, as I said, by a flight of birds, with pigeons, as appeared by what was found on the blood-stained and shattered blades of the propeller. An eyewitness of the accident, a fellow officer, described how Western Reynolds set out from the aerodrome on a fine afternoon, there being hardly any wind. He was going to France. He had made a journey to and fro half a dozen times or more, and felt perfectly secure and at ease. 
Westons rose to a great height at once, and we could scarcely see the machine. I was turning to go when one of the fellows called out, I say, what's this? He pointed up, and we saw what looked like a black cloud coming from the south at a tremendous rate. I saw at once it wasn't a cloud. It came with a swirl and a rush quite different from any cloud I've ever seen. But for a second I couldn't make out exactly what it was. It altered its shape and turned into a great crescent and wheeled and veered about as if it was looking for something. The man who had called out had got his glasses and was staring for all he was worth. Then he shouted that it was a tremendous flight of birds, thousands of them. They went on wheeling and beating about high up in the air, and we were watching them, thinking it was interesting, but not supposing that they would make any difference to Wester, who was just about out of sight. His machine was just a spake. Then the two arms of the crescent drew in as quick as lightning, and these thousands of birds shot in a solid mass right up there across the sky and flew away somewhere about nor nor by west. Then Haney, the man with the glasses, called out, He's dumb! and started running, and I went after him. We got a car, and as we were going along, Haney told me that he'd seen the machine drop dead, as if it came out of that cloud of birds. He thought then that they must have mucked up the propeller somehow. That turns out to be the case. We found the propeller blades all broken and covered with blood and pigeon feathers, and carcasses of the birds had got wedged in between the blades and were sticking to them. This was the story that a young airman told one evening in a small company. He did not speak in confidence, so I have no hesitation in reproducing what he said. Naturally, I did not take a verbatim note of his conversation, but I have something of a knack of remembering talk that interests me, and I think my reproduction is very near to the tale that I heard. And let it be noted that the flying man told his story without any sense or indication of a sense that the incredible or all but the incredible had happened so far as he knew he said it was the first accident of the kind airmen in france had been bothered once or twice by birds he thought they were eagles flying viciously at them but poor old wester had been the first man to come up against a flight of some thousands of pigeons and perhaps i shall be the next he added but why look for trouble anyhow i'm going to see Tudo to-morrow afternoon well i heard the story as one hears all the varied marvels and terrors of the air as one heard some years ago of air pockets strange gulfs or voids in the atmosphere into which airmen fell with great peril or as one heard of the experience of the airman who flew over the cumberland mountains in the burning summer of nineteen eleven and as he swam far above the heights was suddenly and vehemently blown upwards the hot air from the rock striking his plane as if it had been a blast from a furnace chimney we have just begun to navigate a strange region we must expect to encounter strange adventures strange perils and here a new chapter in the chronicles of these perils and adventures had been opened by the death of western reynolds no doubt invention and contrivance would presently hit on some way of countering the new danger it was i think about a week or ten days after the airman's death that my business called me to a northern town the name of which perhaps had better remain unknown 
my mission was to inquire into certain charges of extravagance which had been laid against the working people that is the munition workers of this especial town it was said that the men who used to earn two pounds ten shillings a week were now getting from seven to eight pounds that beats of girls were being paid two pounds instead of seven or eight shillings and that in consequence there was an orgy of foolish extravagance the girls i was told were eating chocolates at four five and six shillings a pound the women were ordering thirty pound pianos which they couldn't play and the men bought gold chains at ten and twenty guineas apiece i dived into the town in question and found as usual that there was a mixture of truth and exaggeration in the stories that i had heard gramophones for example they cannot be called in strictness necessaries but they were undoubtedly finding a ready sale even in the more expensive brands and i thought that there were a great many very spick and span perambulators to be seen on the pavement smart perambulators painted in tender shades of colour and expensively fitted and how can you be surprised if people will have a bit of a fling a worker said to me we are seeing money for the first time in our lives and it's bright and we work hard for it and we risk our lives to get it you've heard of explosion yonder he mentioned certain works on the outskirts of the town of course neither the name of the works nor of the town had been printed there had been a brief notice of explosion at munition works in the northern district many fatalities the working man told me about it and added some dreadful details they wouldn't let their folks see the bodies screwed them up in coffins as they found them in shop the gas had done it turned the faces black you mean nay they were all as if they had been bitten to pieces this was a strange gas i asked the man in the northern town all sorts of questions about the extraordinary explosion of which he had spoken to me but it had very little more to say as i have noted already secrets that may not be printed are often deeply kept last summer there were very few people outside high official circles who knew anything about the tanks of which we have all been talking lately though these strange instruments of war were being exercised and tested in a park not far from london so the man who told me of the explosion in the munition factory was most likely genuine in his profession that he knew nothing more of the disaster I found out that he was a smelter employed at a furnace on the other side of the town to the ruined factory. He didn't know even what they had been making there. Some very dangerous high explosive, he supposed. His information was really nothing more than a bit of gruesome gossip, which he had heard probably at third or fourth or fifth hand. The horrible detail of faces, as if they had been bitten to pieces, had made his violent impression on him that was all i gave him up and took a tram to the district of the disaster a sort of industrial suburb five miles from the centre of the town when i asked for the factory i was told that it was no good my going to it as there was nobody there but i found it a raw and hideous shed with a walled yard about it and a shut gate i looked for signs of destruction but there was nothing the roof was quite undamaged, and again it struck me that this had been a strange accident. There had been an explosion of sufficient violence to kill workpeople in the building, but the building itself showed no wounds or scars. A man came out of the gate and locked it behind him. 
I began to ask him some sort of question, rather. I began to open for a question with a terrible business here, they tell me, or some such phrase of convention. I got no farther. The man asked me if I saw a policeman walking down the street. I said I did, and I was given the choice of getting about my business forthwith or of being instantly given in charge as a spy. Thest better be gone and quick about it was i think his final advice and i took it well i had come literally up against a brick wall thinking the problem over i could only suppose that the smelter or his informant had twisted the phrases of the story the smelter had said the dead man's faces were bitten to pieces this might be an unconscious perversion of eaten away that phrase might describe well enough the effect of strong acids and for all i knew of the processes of munition making such acids might be used and might explode with horrible results in some perilous stage of their admixture it was a day or two later that the accident of the airman western reynolds came into my mind for one of those instants which are far shorter than any measure of time there flashed out the possibility of a link between the two disasters but here was a wild impossibility and i drove it away and yet i think that the thought mad as it seemed never left me it was the secret light that at last guided me through a sombre grove of enigmas it was about this time so far as the date can be fixed that a whole district one might say a whole county was visited by a series of extraordinary and terrible calamities which were the more terrible inasmuch as they continued for some time to be inscrutable mysteries it is indeed doubtful whether these awful events do not still remain mysteries to many of those concerned for before the inhabitants of this part of the country had time to join one link of evidence to another the secular was issued and thenceforth no one knew how to distinguish undoubted facts from wild and extravagant surmise the district in question is in the far west of wales i shall call it for convenience Marion. in it there is one seaside town of some repute with holiday-makers for five or six weeks in the summer in dotted about the county there are three or four small old towns that seem drooping in a slow decay sleepy and grey with age and forgetfulness they remind me of what i have read of towns in the west of ireland grass grows between the uneven stones of the pavements the sides above the shop windows decline half the letters of these signs are missing here and there a house has been pulled down or has been allowed to slide into ruin and wild greenery springs up through the fallen stones and there is silence in all the streets and it is to be noted these are not places that were once magnificent the celts have never had the art of building and so far as i can see such towns as towin and marcel tevelt and Meiros must have been always much as they are now clusters of poorish meanly built houses ill-kept and down at hill and these few towns are thinly scattered over a wild country where north is divided from south by a wilder mountain range one of these places is sixteen miles from any station the others are doubtfully and deviously connected by single-line railways served by rare trains that pause and stagger and hesitate on their slow journey up mountain passes 
or stop for half an hour or more at lonely sheds called stations situated in the midst of desolate marshes a few years ago i travelled with an irishman on one of these queer lines and he looked to right and saw the bog with its yellow and blue grasses and stagnant pools and he looked to left and saw a ragged hillside set with grey stone walls i can hardly believe he said that i'm not still in the wilds of ireland here then one sees a wild and divided and scattered region a land of outland hills and secret and hidden valleys i know white farms on this coast which must be separate by two hours of hard rough walking from any other habitation which are invisible from any other house and inland again the farms are often ringed about by thick rows of ash planted by men of old days to shelter their roof trees from rude winds of the mountain and stormy winds of the sea so that these places too are hidden away she surmised only by the wood smoke that rises from the green surrounding leaves a londoner must see them to believe in them and even then he can scarcely credit their utter isolation such then in the main is marion and on this land in the early summer of last year terror descended a terror without shape such as no man there had ever known it began with the tale of a little child who wandered out into the lanes to pick flowers one sunny afternoon and never came back to the cottage on the hill End of chapter one